Hello, listeners. I'm Michael Lanspa, Web Director for the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Thanks for listening in. Our topic today is how diagnostic checklists and clinical decision support can help standardize critical care. I'm joined today by the investors for the CERTAIN project, Dr. Maria Vukoya from the University of Novi Sad, Serbia, and Drs. Onyen Gajic and Rahul Kashyap from Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Manuel Ache from Sedimat, Dominican Republic. Uh, the CERTAIN pilot study is a global study using a web-based decision support tool and checklist for the intensive care unit. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to start with Dr. Vukoya. What were your motivations behind starting the CERTAIN project? Thanks for having us, Michael. CERTAIN, which stands for Checklist for Early Recognition and Treatment of Acute Illness, is a systematic approach to error prevention with the use of checklists and electronic decision support algorithms. Now, I got motivated during my time spent as postdoctoral fellow at Mayo Clinic in 2008, witnessed the quality care and critical care medicine there, and realized that so much could be done in my home country of Serbia and other low- and middle-income countries around the globe. The main challenges were limited access to educational resources and geographical distance in low- and middle-income countries. Some intensivists believe that the biggest reductions in mortality that we see in the next 10 years will be not from discovering some new therapy, but by implementing what we already know. Uh, Dr. Gajic, what sort of evidence-based practices is the CERTAIN project designed to implement? Hi, Michael. Thank you for the privilege to discuss our work today uh, with the ATS audience. I think you stated it really well. Streamlining clinical practice through quality improvement has already had a dramatic effect in improving outcomes of sepsis and trauma in high-income countries. Um, now, the ad- recent advances in information technology, such as mobile cloud computing and affordable two-way video communication, provided opportunity to prototype a scalable solution for knowledge translation to the bedside of critically ill patient anywhere. That's what we are doing. So, consisting of two modules, uh, uh, first admission resuscitation module and then rounding and daily plan, plan of care module, certain provides Uh, easy access to evidence-based diagnostic treatment and procedural checklists, and has the ability to time and document real-time interventions. Well, that sounds like quite an impressive undertaking. One of the things that I think is interesting are the kinds of clinical errors that checklists can avoid. And Atul Gawande, an author who's known for the checklist manifesto, highlights how easily physicians can fail to do the right thing in common procedures, like, for example, central line infections. Dr. Kashap, what sort of common clinical or clinician errors can be avoided by checklists? I'm glad that you mentioned Dr. Gwande, who we are privileged to have as one of our external advisors for the study. Also, the pioneering work of Dr. Peter Pornogost with daily goals of care checklist and central line bundle has already proven the necessity of a structured checklist approach to daily rounds and basing procedures. I'm clearly biased towards checklist use, so I would say most, if not all, clinical errors can be mitigated by a checklist use. As we have learned from other advanced systems, such as aviation industry, checklists are particularly effective in preventing so-called error of omissions, such as all-too-common delays in antibiotics, and source control during sepsis station. Now, the CERTAIN pilot study has an international focus, which I find interesting. The international focus is on how we might improve delivery of care for low- and middle-income country hospitals. Dr. Aceh, what, what sort of barriers exist for adopting checklists at ICUs with variable resources? Thank you, Dr. Lanspa. First and foremost, there are technical barriers. This can range from the usual issues of infrastructure, lower to doctor-to-patient ratio, 
increased workload to even language and lack of trained staff. In, you know, in the Dominican Republic, we speak Spanish at Novi Sad, Serbian, and in Mayo Clinic, English. However, the most important barrier was not a cost-dependent variable. In fact, it was a human trait, resistance to change. An all-too-common song that we see in ICUs is, I've been doing this for 15 years. Why should I change now? I think I know how to practice medicine. And as Dr. Keshup singled out, this could be quite dangerous. Unstandardized care begets errors of omission. If there is no buy-in or structured support from the clinical team, then there will be poor adherence to implementation. The first step to overcome in this barrier was bringing awareness of the need to change. Before any actual data collection took place, the Search and Global team thoroughly studied what was the current situation initially in 15 ICUs in 11 low- and middle-income countries and assessed how we could change critical care. Dr. Vukoya, what sort of outcomes are you looking at with the certain study? As an outcome assessment, we will look for better care, better health, and lower cost. With regards to better care, we expect to see an improvement in the processes of care and safety culture. Specifically, we will measure compliance with timely and adequate antimicrobial therapy, compliance with ventilatory bundles such as DVT prophylaxis, GI prophylaxis, sedation holidays, assessments of readiness to extubate, compliance with lung protective mechanical ventilation, and conservative blood product usage. With regards to better health, we will measure ICU, hospital, and 28-day mortality, and discharge disposition, home versus other institution. Regarding lower cost, we will measure resource utilization, ICU, and hospital length of stay. Well, this sounds like a pretty ambitious project. One thing I'd like to comment on is, in 2009, the World Health Organization's 19-item surgical checklist reduced complications and deaths, which resulted in widespread adoption. But uh, when Ontario implemented this checklist, they observed no reduction in mortality uh, or no reduction in complications either. Dr. Ache, what might be some of the reasons for why some hospitals see benefits from checklists and why other hospitals don't? Thank you. So this is a real-world scenario, and mortality is a multifactorial outcome. However, study design is most important. The diversity of the geographical distribution of the study sites, the current standard of care at the study sites, and its access to resources are pivotal to determine the effect size of the intervention of a study. Benefits may not be apparent in an all-research-rich setting, as they are prone to selection bias. Our initial survey showed that over a quarter of low- and middle-income countries' ICUs are not staffed by critical care physicians. Only 38% reported use of any kind of checklist, and half of them had access to medical journals. So quality assurance of the study intervention may be another important issue, not allowing for investment in local champions nor sense of ownership of the project may result in an ephemeral return of investment. If done well, patients in any setting stand to benefit from error-free decision support tools. Well, I can't agree more about perhaps not seeing benefits in an all-resource-rich environment due to selection bias. And so that's one of the things I think is so remarkable about uh, this study focusing on ICUs with variable resources. You know, another thing I'd like to ask is that a lot of checklists that seem to have the most effect have focused on specific areas like reducing catheter-related bloodstream infections or how to perform uh, effective cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Now, the CERTAIN project is new in the sense that it also covers diagnosis as well as daily rounds. Dr. Vukoya, what are some of the challenges with attempting to design a checklist for something as broad as a diagnosis? 
Thank you. That is an excellent question. Uh, now, in solution software, the diagnostic process is facilitated by color-coded charting of key life threats in physical exam, ABCDs, and point-of-care labs. This is followed by diagnostic algorithms which start from nonspecific presentations, such as shortness of breath or altered mental state, and moving through syndrome identification, sepsis, shock, hypocapnic respiratory failure, and parallel application of basic life support intervention, such as fluid bolses and non-invasive ventilation. So the card content was based on an international survey of critical care professionals that was performed by a group that assessed the type of information considered to be most pertinent by bedside care providers. To ensure that the content stays up to date, authors receive a request after one year to update their card with regards to changes in current evidence. In addition, this process can be triggered at any time by a certain user via an embedded feedback button in the software. So a crucial change in developing globally applicable decision support is to provide best practice recommendations that are relevant in low resource practice settings where some more advanced tests and interventions may just not be available. We try to solve this by crafting cards that are based on best evidence uh, in a resource-rich setting, while at the same time allowing users to add customized notes to each card so that for instance, hospitals can add a specific recommendation regarding antibiotics for pneumonia, taking into account local resistance patterns and drug availability. Well, I think this is fascinating how the certain project has the ability to allow for iterative refinement from the users to try to improve the actual algorithm. I think that's a great novel feature of the study. I'd like to ask about compliance here. There was a recent study that was published in JAMA Surgery that assessed whether or not a paper surgical checklist was completed by only looking at whether or not the paper form was 80% completed. Dr. Kashyap, how important is it to assess adherence to a checklist by assessing whether or not the intervention actually occurred? Is it acceptable to just do the mental exercise of reminding the clinician to do the intervention? Michael, you're asking very pertinent questions, so thank you. As Dr. Hashe mentioned earlier, that poor adherence to the protocol and not training enough local champions are the two major barriers in such quality initiative. In certain study, consistent adherence, which is four consecutive weeks of 80% or higher compliance for checklist use is required prior to moving to post-implementation data collection. Both during and after implementation stage, certain team is sending weekly feedbacks to each ICU with any decrease in that adherence, prompting communication with local champions to address potential barriers. And also, just to let you know and our audience that we plan to report on implementation challenges and solutions in a form of abstract in upcoming ATS 2017 meeting at Washington, D.C. Well, I think we'll all be very excited and eager to see what the abstract results are. I've noticed that the CERTAIN study is a web-based application, although the focus is implementation at ICUs of variable resources. Dr. Gajic, how important was it to have a computer-based support tool over a paper checklist, knowing that there may be problems with access to the Internet? Good question, Michael. There are some clear advantages of uh, computer de decision support, including but not limited to time-stepped time -stepped, uh, assessments, better visualization of complex patterns, ability to access images and references, and near real-time monitoring of provider adherence. However, we do have a paper backup, which in selected ICU was the only way to get the study going. 
a computer-based tool encountered multiple barriers, including less than reliable Wi-Fi, need for additional training, and overall suboptimal computer literacy of ICU staff in diverse settings. Um, nonetheless, there is some appeal in computers. First, the, especially the mobile version that we are trying to perfect now has been adopted easier than some of the uh, of the other tools given the ubiquity of the uh, mobile phones and smartphones really anywhere in the world and there is some appeal in novel technology to include get the more of the interest uh, among our colleagues anywhere it seems that checklists are somewhat dependent on making the right diagnosis for example if i treat according to a sepsis checklist and i fail to diagnose concomitant gastrointestinal bleed i might end up doing the wrong checklist how is your group attempting to solve this problem? Well, I can answer that. Uh, what we believe is that a use of structured checklist will rather prevent than cause such issues. To give an example, certain tool prompts the end user to check and exclude the alternative causes in a differential diagnosis of a specific syndrome, such as hypotension. Of course, checklist does not replace medical judgment. Rather, it provides an aid. To give you an exa other example, like a a driver who drives the car, but the GPS, and in this case, certain can be treated as GPS, it guides to him or her reach to the destination safe and on time. I think that GPS analogy is absolutely great. I'd like to comment about the possibility of people who find checklists distracting. A, a colleague of mine recently observed that she might have someone with a very straightforward problem, perhaps needing one or two major therapies, but by the time she's completed the checklist, she's forgotten to order the major things involved with that straightforward problem. How do we solve these sorts of challenges to avoid physician distraction? Uh, this is a great insight. Uh, one of our approaches in certain implementation is that clinicians do their usual tasks according to their training. And once they take a break or before they move on to the next patient, a prompter or themselves can just glance through the checklist to see if something was missed. Finding none, you have just done your usual work and confirmed that you haven't overlooked any essential elements in spite of your heavy workload. Protocolized care has a possibility to standardize care and then also offload work from the clinician, but are there any concerns that heavy reliance on protocols and checklists will result in complacency and less thinking from the clinician? So I would like to come back to the analogy of, of the driver and the GPS. Yes, over-reliance on GPS can indeed result in complacency, as you mentioned. However, the GPS should never replace a driver. On balance, the risk is lower than the benefit. Try finding your way without GPS in any of the big cities in the U.S. and let alone in Europe. Clinicians are ultimately in charge of all medical decisions and their patients' welfare. Checklists will reaffirm their actions and over time, less frequently, will save medical mishaps. Just to reaffirm, the patients and their loved ones are the ultimate winners here. Well, I couldn't agree more. Now, the certain pilot studies already being implemented worldwide what sort of feedback have you received from clinicians about implementing the tool in routine practice? Well, the preliminary data from our pilot center are actually showing that certain implementation is feasible and was associated with better adherence to basic critical care processes. However, we have identified several implementation obstacles globally, including mostly lack of computers and stable Wi-Fi connections, uh, language barriers as well, and lack of personnel and physician rotations. Now, in order to overcome these barriers, we provide paper version of certain, as we mentioned, and in addition, the card's content is currently being translated in 10 languages. 
Have any physicians complained about the actual protocol itself, not the computers or Wi-Fi? So uh, initially there was lack of buy-in with uh, the software, as I mentioned before. And uh, what uh, happened is w once they started doing the process of using the software, they noticed certain defects that the, uh, that the rounding process that they were using for now years uh, had some defects and they were missing important and pertinent information on patients. What's uh, interesting about certain, either the paper version or the software, is that you can adapt to whatever rounding or critical care process that you use for caring for patients. And, and, and usually and ultimately uh, physicians adapted and used the, the software even more than the paper just because of how easy it is to use. I could just add one thing on the previous comment. There, there, there are multiple barriers, obviously, and things like checklists. You need to have a 50 or 60 encounters with a patient, let's say, on rounds, to notice yourself that you missed something. So on average, if you work one or two days, you say, okay, why do I do need the checklist? There is nothing to get. However, we as researchers, we know, and system thinkers, we know that over the period of time and over many patients, you see that. So the institutions and ICUs, after they got, we had great insights, after they went through like first six months, and every of the clinicians had maybe another 50 or plus encounters, almost everyone noticed that it's that he or she was reminded about something. And then once you have this, your own epiphany, I guess, they, it becomes easier. But the problem with any of the checklists is it takes time for you to make the error that the, the checklist will pick up. Any changes to the project that you hope to implement for the next phase? Well, the overall study results, and we hope uh, to have them available at the beginning of 2018, will be informative with regards to the impact of certain on patient care and outcomes across diverse ICU settings. We are working in parallel with Mayo Clinic, critical care societies, and industry partners to develop a sustainable solution for all aspects of certain, including up-to-date multi-language uh, multi uh, content management system, reliable mobile and tablet versions of the software, remote simulation training with CME credit, etc. I would use this opportunity to acknowledge the generous funding from Chess Foundation and Minnesota Partnership for Biotechnology, as well as support from the U.S. Critical Illness and Injury Trials Group, ESICM Global Working Group, and the ATS International uh, Health Committee. Well, this is, again, a very ambitious project that I think has a big potential to change how we deliver critical care globally. Based on what you've learned, what can clinicians do to improve care at their own hospitals? I have a simple answer for that, Mike. Uh, I would say that you cannot improve what you don't measure. The first and the foremost is to continuously measure and coordinate care processes and patient outcome in each individual hospital. A learning healthcare system, if you will. So I think, in a nutshell, certain, no certain, we need to start measuring anything we would like to improve. Well, that's great advice. For those listeners who are interested in the CERTAIN project, how might they go about getting more information? More info about the CERTAIN study is available on the website www.icertain.org. For podcast listeners, I would also like to add that the pediatric version of CERTAIN, called CERTAIN-P, is also available, and we are in phase three of that study as well. Dr. Grace Artega, pediatric intensivist at Mayo Clinic, is heading those efforts. So you can also follow us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and tweet at Twitter with hashtag CERTAIN. Well, that's great. I hope that uh, generates a lot more interest and activity for uh, people who are interested in this study. 
Uh, thank you so much to our listeners as well as to Drs. Vukoya, Gaich, Kashyap, and Hache for uh, joining me. This group is doing very important work to improve the delivery of critical care globally, and we look forward to the final results of the study, as well as hearing some of the uh, results at ATS 2017. We're out of time, so this concludes this ATS Critical Care Podcast. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Thoracic Society Critical Care Assembly. Thank you.